Case file number 4.5, The Weird Wide Web, Part 3, observed by Agent Grenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Ever see that XKCD about uh, Google being evil? I don't think I have. Well, here, let me send you the, the link. Oh, okay. I, I vaguely remember this one. So this is goes into one of the things that we're going to talk about today, because this is episode three of the HTTP breakdown, and there's oh. a lot to it. I'm just going to try and give you a, a, a sampler platter of crazy stuff like past the stuff in episode two where we're talking about cross-site scripting and cross-site request forgery and SQL injection. Now that we're in this interconnected cloud world, what new stuff has come up from, from that? Just mm. give a bunch of different ways of thinking about how this has changed the idea of one website, one server, and either exploiting the server or exploiting the website itself. Okay, gotcha. The XKCD, for anybody who doesn't know, is, is um, the guy in the hat, the evil or at least completely amoral character in XKCD. <laughs> he is wearing a black hat. Talks about how to get lots and lots of user account information by making a bunch of unprofitable web services that a lot of people use. And it's like, yeah, I have all of this account information, but now like, I don't want to do anything with it. Like nothing seems fun or profitable. And he says at the end, this is the same problem Google has. <laughs> <laughs> And at the very bottom, it, it's like, okay, now we have all of this account information and all of this, all of this data. What do we do with it? And they go through a couple of things. It's like, we really suck at being evil. I think they may have gotten better, but. Um, yeah, yeah. I feel like Google's gotten a lot better at that uh, in recent years. But Hey, they employ a lot of smart people. You'd figure that they'd get better at it. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. You just got to employ so many people with um, like sinister mustaches. Well, I mean, maybe that's the reason why the hipster handlebar mustache, wax mustache thing came back is to give a sufficient population of people with sinister mustaches to groom into being actually evil. Oh, very well could be. Aha, it happened in the reverse order you thought. <laughs> so we're going to talk a little bit. So let's kind of start talking a little bit about password reuse. There's a guy in Microsoft, a regional director named Troy Hunt. He also won their internal award of most valuable, most valuable professional in developer security. And he was doing some analysis on the Sony breach in 2011, the one that you did an episode about in season one, the Sony exposed right. episode, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, so he was looking at that and looking at some other similar breaches of Yahoo and Adobe that happened shortly thereafter. Okay. And he said in his blog, quote, uh, in the middle of last year, which would have been 2012, I wrote, what do Sony and Yahoo have in common? Passwords. And found that 95% of people with accounts in both sources had the same password. Yeah. So that was the first blog entry he had when he announced the website, haveibeenpwned.com. Are you familiar mm, right. with this? Yeah, I think we, I think we brought it up then at least one or two episodes. I know just because I was randomly listening to some of the episodes that released, uh, I think I brought it up in the, the Sony Network Act one. I'm sure we have. That has been kind of the thing that's most cringe for me when we listen to our episodes is like, <laughs> oh, that's a reference to a thing that we, oh gosh, like you brought up a reference to Shadow Brokers stuff mm -hmm. and, and um, Blue Eternal. And I just couldn't pull it at the time. And so we just went right past it. And it was like, it hurts so much listening to it later and realizing, oh God, this is a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so what it does is it takes 
disclosed breach information and compiles it together. It doesn't have to necessarily be just usernames and passwords or email addresses and passwords. They take email addresses, phone numbers, other associated PII, uh, personally identifiable information. Also, they do things of um, usernames and or email addresses and passwords. And mm -hmm. um, as a user, or even as a professional, you can go and take an email address and submit it. And it'll tell you if it's if that email address or that phone number is in any of its data sets. Okay. And I know actually uh, one of the security operations centers that I work that I've worked at makes a regular practice of looking for anything uh, with their domain name in it. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. We're not worried about necessarily our stuff being turned out this way, but if one of our users used their professional email address in this, it could mean hmm. target yeah. for spam or identity theft. It could also mean the password they used there is also used on the internal network. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so that's not a bad security practice, not a, not a bad tip if you're looking for other ways of doing things that, that are not necessarily directly IDS related. But, but let's talk a little bit about a couple of the data sets that they have there. And they, they have in, in the main site, they have the largest breaches. The biggest example, a single disclosure was called collection one. And it appears to be a very large compiled list of lots of breach information uh, together. That's, a, that's 773 million unique email and password combinations. Oh, damn. You said that was, that was called collection one? Yes, it's called collection one. It was found on a hacker forum in January, 2019. The other member of the three quarter of a billion record club is a site called Verification IO, which went down very shortly after this breach. Um, <laughs> it disclosed emails, phone numbers, names, date of birth, employers, a bunch of other personally identifiable information in their data set. It was found by a researcher named Bob Dechenko, having found a publicly accessible MongoDB with no password in February 2019. Oh, okay. I was randomly just looking up the collection one thing because I was like, I feel like I have seen this drop at some point, possibly, but I did find uh, some magnet URLs for it. Yeah. I, pr so I probably I, pulled it off a paste bin at some point. You may very well have. I, I will admit that when things started kind of going crazy with this stuff, I stopped trying to pay attention to individual disclosures. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was like, I'm glad somebody's compiling it because it's too much work to replicate at this point and do a good job of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So verification IO was basically, hey, upload to us your set of data of email addresses, phone numbers, and we'll validate them for you. Hmm. They did this by basically spamming people. Um, <laughs> but like, I look at that business model and I'm like, well, why would I just spam people with emails that don't say anything? I probably have an embedded set of clients that I would use to spam the addresses that people submit to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because why make money only one way? <laughs> um, you got to you gotta diversify, man. Yeah, you got to get it coming and going. <laughs> <laughs> you know, very much embody the whole idea of if you're getting it for free, you are not the customer, you are the product. Yep, exactly. <laughs> And then the other notable one in that list that I, when I looked over it, was the half billion or so record disclosure of Facebook data. Mm, okay. I, I vaguely remember uh, when yeah. that got dumped. Yeah. It was dumped in April 2021 and was believed to have been acquired from a breach in 2019 mm. that Facebook patched about when the breach was reported. But somebody got the data dump from breaching that, that exploit. Mm -hmm. And then they would sell access to it. They basically say, hey, you give us what you want to search against and we'll, and we'll search it for that rather than just giving a copy. Right, but right. copies got out. We don't know how. We don't, we don't know if they sold copies to certain people. We don't know if somebody that worked with them made off with the goods. We have no idea. We don't even know if multiple people exploited the same vulnerability. But what we do yeah. know is that between 2019 and the full... Uh, free disclosure in April 2021, we saw slowly decreasing prices for searches from multiple people. So basically, mm, yeah. they were undercutting each other until it was <laughs> so worthless that it was just published on a, on a forum. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
I thought that that was pretty funny. <laughs> um, there have been a few other things like um, certain fishing toolkits and stuff that are hacker on hacker crime, where mm, yeah. the guy who wrote it will embed his reporting information in there. So you do your own fishing stuff, but everything that you fish also goes to him. I mean, that's smart. Hey, again, <laughs> why get it only going one way? Exactly. And if you're smart <laughs> enough to write the tool, kind of like, well, you know, yeah. I wrote the tool, so... And if somebody else isn't smart enough to write the tool, they probably aren't smart enough to find that you put yeah, that back, back channel, that back channel in there. That was it's actually, it just vaguely reminds me of, um, I think it was LVY, which is a World of Warcraft add-on collection mm-hmm. to kind of restructure you, your UI and everything. But at, I think two years ago, three years ago, people found there was a, a full-on back door into it. And it raised like, you know, a bunch of concerns about, you know, because, you know, I would say probably good 80 to 90% of the community use this one specific add-on. Okay. And all yeah. add-ons like plugged into it mm-hmm. and interfaced with it and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, we, we, it was really bad. I can't remember the particulars of it. The thing about something like that is that I can see a monetization path if essentially you're getting somebody to run code locally on their client. Because mm-hmm. gold farming is a real thing. And wow, people pay real money for it. If you could figure out some way of transferring um goods or money to everybody or even just one percent of the people who use that stuff you don't need to farm for items to sell in the real world and there's already marketplaces for it yeah 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 exactly in fact i'm still tangenting on on a wow mm-hmm. but recently there's been a huge thing boosting communities where people will basically pay in-game currency to other people to drag them through content that they can't um, accomplish on their own or they might not have time to spend like you know going trying again See, and again hitting the wall the thin line between pay to play and sherpaing gets just strided over and then run a mile in that other direction yeah yeah and this had been going on for over a year like where people were making bank on this sort of thing and mm-hmm. just last week they announced um it was now going to be a bannable offense and you saw entire communities vanish overnight yeah and we've well, we've seen stuff like that happen before. Uh, Craigslist uh, declined significantly in popularity when they had to change their rules about some of their 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 uh, personal ads. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think that one of the things that's kind of important, uh, a thing that's a little bit important about this is the reuse problem is a problem because passwords don't scale. You have to have a new account for every service that you've got, um, or at least you would if you're not talking about federation, which we're going to get to a little bit. Mm -hmm. So it's a scaling problem with the internet. But on the other side of the coin, being able to compile all that information together and putting together a website that a, I mean, he's a regional director at Microsoft, but that's his hobby site. That's not sponsored by by Microsoft. Right, right, yeah. built it using cloud services, put it up in 2013, has been running ever since. And the reason he can do that is for this is because of the same scaling, because he's able to leverage cloud services in order to make all of that information and even the search functions not just deal with these billions of records, but do so in a manner that's fast and cheap enough for him to do it as a hobby. Mm-hmm. Are you going to talk about the, the new NIST 853 guidelines for passwords? No, I'm not. I was not oh, going to, but... Yeah, the, the new revision um, basically states that like no longer should you be resetting passwords on a you know per month um, timer or whatever. It should only happen when you have cause to assume that you've been breached because much like people just use passwords across the board, people iterate mm-hmm. passwords. And if you force them to change their password every month, all they're going to do is change the very last character yeah. and go straight across the number board um, with special characters until they're allowed to use their original password again and they can start over. Yeah, the iteration problem is real. Also, looking at that in a a 90 degree different weapon, an orthogonal, a 90 degree different way, an orthogonal direction. If you have five passwords you need to, if you have five systems you need to to log into, Mm -hmm. if you have to change it every month, you may change it all to the same password. If you have to change it, you know, whenever it might be much more reasonable for you to do good practice and have different passwords for each of them. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's far more reasonable to have five different passwords for five different systems and know that those are your passwords unless something Mm -hmm. happens, and then be like, well, 
all right, on system A, my passwords change every month. On system B, they change every other month. And like, yeah. where where am I in my list of like, you know, changing the passwords? Yeah, you're just going to use the same exact one and iterate the exact same way on every single one. Yeah, we've seen that happen. It's just, it, hmm. this is like the problem with passwords is that reuse is there because there's just too much of an intellectual burden. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's the core of every talk you're going to go to, every speech you're going to get about passwords being dead is some variation on that core problem. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. Actually, there's one other problem that's related to that, which we're not going to go into, but it is about replay. Mm, okay. Once you get a password, you can use it again and again and again. And that's also true in Active Directory, NTLM authentication. If you're using the SAML password, you don't see the password, but you see the hash and the hash is vulnerable to replay, just like we talked about in the Mimi Cats episode. This is kind <laughs> of a, I found a little bit of a greatest hits theme in, in <laughs> as I was putting this one together. So in the last episode, we talked a little bit about plain text passwords. If you get an email with your real password in it, not only is that bad, but that's, but is that bad for your password? But it tells you that whoever gave you that password stored it in the clear and that's really yeah. bad. <laughs> on that i just recently got an email uh literally like two or three days ago from i won't mention who but a, a university of some sort that emailed my password in clear text and i was like thanks <laughs> you know that you gave me a degree in cybersecurity. i know better <laughs> yeah yeah i was like i, I would have i would have hoped for better like what the hell come on should email it to the dean or something. Yeah, really. Should be like, you see, you see this shit? Like, what the hell's going on? <laughs> yes. So another weakness in the way that we deal with passwords, again, part of the scaling issue, is that password resets take a lot of, um, of work if you're going to do them with security questions and the whole thing to a real person. Even just doing basic password uh, resets, even if you don't have all the questions, mm -hmm. if you're not automating it, take way too much uh, time. Right. So because we have the automation systems, if the email address that they're emailing resets to is, is compromised, well, now every account that uses that is compromised. Mm -hmm. um, and we also know that we have definitely seen social engineers that will basically say, oh, we're PayPal, Facebook, whatever. I'm, I, I'm just pulling somebody, somebody up that a lot of the service that a lot of people use. And yeah. They say something's wrong with your password. Go ahead and reset it and read me off the code at the at the bottom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or <laughs> like the security questions where everyone uses first pet's name and like the street you yeah. grew up on or something. Like they're the, the very generic ones anyone with five minutes can go find on Facebook. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, well, that's the thing that that even if you don't have that data in any of your social media, it's probably on like your credit report. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because you can assume a pretty high hit rate of when what was the first address on this person's credit report and their address of where they grew up. I mean, it's not going to be a hundred percent, not even close, but it's going to be higher than fifty. It's going to be close enough, and I I've had it where with banks and I can't remember the other organizations where they would allow me to guess multiple times. Yeah, or there was one and. You know, thankfully it was my account and I was trying to yeah. like reset my password, but it's right. like, I, I don't remember that question. And they would just give me a new one instead right. of being like, well, now you need to call us. And eventually I got one question that I knew and I was like, oh, this one and got it to reset. This is a whole, this is a, this is a, a slight digression, but like one of the things that I thought was pretty good. And I assumed some things about the backend that was maybe I was giving them too much credit, but it's like, the, which one of these addresses, which one of these streets appear on your credit report, which one of mm -hmm. these things. And you figure that they ask you three or five of those questions. Somebody might guess one of them, but they're not going to guess five of them. Right, right. And if you vary it enough, then it, then they have to correlate multiple pieces of information. Part mm -hmm. of what I was about to go for is like date of birth was used at all in a lot of uh, validation for a long time, but date of birth is recorded in a lot of places it's not a secure piece of information mm -hmm, yeah that idea works if if you're saying you're not going to guess multiple questions of this nature correct but if you're letting any one of them through mm -hmm, yeah. that's a problem that's yeah, the yeah, opposite yeah. You're, you're you're flipping your probabilities the opposite way so one of the things that we're trying that people have tried to do to deal with the password problem well, basically the big solution to the password problem is multi-factor authentication. Yeah. 
And the most important factor that I think has enabled the use of multi-factor authentication for most folks, at least most folks in the highly developed world, um, I don't mean that pejoratively, but the point being you need a smartphone. Mm -hmm. Your yeah. phone is your token. And that's because those little RSA tokens that we're, that, that's, that we're used to having, different companies ha have those now, they're just basically calculating a timestamp with a private key. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that can be validated on the server side because time synced. And your phone is time synced because otherwise phone calls wouldn't work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's how the towers talk to uh, make sure <laughs> that they're doing things uh, synchronized. But it's not the first time this has happened. Um, when I was doing remote administration back in the early to mid 2000s of mm. routers and switches, they had crypto modems that would only let you dial out from specific phone numbers. Really? Okay. Yeah. And for a lot of credit and legal stuff, when validation was necessary, they'd, they'd give you a phone call on your home phone line. Hmm, okay. So it's not the first time the idea of your phone being your, to being your token or being a factor has been used, but it's now becoming kind of ubiquitous. Yeah, I remember kind of the transition because it used to be back in, I think, Burning Crusade for World of Warcraft and starting when Final Fantasy XIV first launched. Um, mm -hmm. It was, you got you got like the basically RSA token uh, shipped mm -hmm. to you yeah. if you opted for that. And then, you know, about like five years later or something, it was more rolled into your phone because they were mm -hmm. like, all right, now we have apps, just use the app because we, we know you've lost that token somewhere. Like you yeah. misplaced it and you're going to be super pissed if you misplace that token and can no longer log into your game. Mm -hmm. Well, also those tokens, they need to have time sync. So they need to have power and power consistently. Flipping yeah. batteries is just not a thing you can do. Uh -huh. So uh, they don't have the expense of having those tokens to deal with. And they don't have to replace the tokens. Both Blizzard and Steam were pretty early adopters of the uh -huh. phone app is your token kind of authentication. And yeah, yeah. in one of the rare instances of gaming pushing technology and not porn pushing technology <laughs> yeah yeah exactly you don't, i don't think you need tokens to watch porn i don't know if we're if we're ever going to talk too much about it but we did we did mention that basically ssl came about in part because of porn people paying mm -hmm. for porn and we know that a lot of video streaming technology a lot of the iteration on that happened because of porn yeah, I mean, it's been the driving factor, you know, Betamax versus VHS and yep. Blu-ray versus, uh, was it DVD Max? HD uh, DVD. HD DVD, that's right. So one thing that people have been talking about, uh, have you ever heard the term internet driver's license? <laughs> no, I, no. Well, so when people started really talking about passwords as a problem, mm -hmm. uh, that was a term people used a little bit to refer to an account that people confederate against that basically everybody has. Okay. Interesting. So well, one that people usually use as an example was Facebook. And to which mm -hmm. I said, I've never had a Facebook account. I will never have a Facebook account. Um, I had one random one uh, years and years ago that eventually got stolen. And mm -hmm. I think I went to log into it like four years ago and it was like, oh, it's been stolen. And I was like, okay, well, can I recover it? And they were like, nope, sorry. Like yeah. it, it well, also got banned for whatever it was doing. <laughs> Yeah. So actually, I, I'm going to skip around a little bit in my outline to talk specifically to that. So your Facebook account, your Gmail account, Windows Live or Microsoft Live account, mm -hmm. um, all of these are what I'm going to call, refer to as key accounts. And I refer to them as key accounts because they're not necessarily email accounts. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. If these are compromised, you're boned. This is the nature of consolidating the authentication. Mm -hmm. But right. Compromise and recovery is kind of a pain because in a lot of ways, at least all of three of those, you're getting it for free. The tech support is something that the company that owns it wants to spend as little as possible on. Yeah, yeah exactly. I've heard people talking about getting recoveries of Facebook accounts. Uh, I've had to do it myself on Gmail one time. And even in the best cases, it's not always a very fast turnaround. And in the worst yeah. cases, they're when we put so much effort into it. Yeah, they, they really don't care. Um, yeah. And that was exactly what it was. Responsibility. Facebook does not care about you authenticating to another website. Um, yeah. 
So a thing that I think is actually going to be really important at some point going forward is that we need to separate who's providing those key accounts from the other parts of service and actually have some real contractual responsibility. Mm, right, right. But those key accounts are, are actually important to a significant problem that I'm sure you've dealt with on the internet, which is that anytime somebody can make accounts with no verification, no captcha, no email, no nothing, you mm. get people building a ton of these spam accounts. Increasing the cost of making an account, even to a minute and a half or five minute process that kills the automation has a big effect. Right, yeah. And then we've seen in places like Reddit, I think Reddit's a kind of a good example of this, because of their karma system, they have created a value in having a longer term account for certain subjects yeah. and stuff. I'm like tangenting to like MMOs a lot here, but that, that was um, a very common thing that I saw. Like I played Final Fantasy XI back in the day. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, it took you uh, like a year and a half to hit max level. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of time and there was a lot associated to your account. Like people knew you, you had a name for yourself online, kind mm -hmm. of like you're saying with Reddit Karma. And the same yeah. with like World of Warcraft for a while yeah. before. That's, that's server exactly my point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then once, once you could server transfer, like, and everything was, you know, um, queue up into looking for group and stuff like that, it, you saw a huge decline in just how people treated each other and just like <laughs> all the social aspects just disintegrated. Yeah. If moving your account has higher costs, how mm -hmm. high that cost is, I think is totally open to debate. But I think that, the, that dealing with some of the consequences for your actions problems are very much related to the cost of creating new accounts. Yeah, yeah. I think like just like real life, I don't think certain things should follow you forever. Yeah. Like I don't I don't think you should have to like live down tiny mistakes like for the rest yeah. of your life and be so tiptoeing around. But yeah, there there is like there's value also to like yeah have, having to follow you. I'm gaming environments I've dealt with people who got banned for saying things that shouldn't be said in mm -hmm polite or even impolite company online. Right. And I get that those those were teenagers in most cases. And the fact that they should be able to set those mistakes behind them is, I think, important. But yeah. I don't think it should be costless, mm -hmm. yeah. both for them in those particular instances, but for the general health of the platform. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, you want you want new people to feel, like come on, feel safe, especially in terms of gaming or just anything like that. and you yeah. don't want people just running amok, basically. Yeah. And the thing is, I think that when we're talking about potentially gray stuff, like uh, like spam and stuff, mm -hmm. I think that it's important that that it like it costs you a non-trivial amount of effort to establish digital identity that anybody can easily set a filter, say, hey, if this account isn't over X amount of age or has more mm -hmm. than this many comments or uh, over this period of time, whatever, you could set your own standards, but, you know, drop it on the floor. So somebody can't just make something. And the gray stuff is also the same vector for a lot of bad stuff. Yeah. It's not just the social aspects, which are important to, because we're all living on the internet now, mm. especially in COVID world. But I think that it's that the full health of the, of the internet from the social aspect all the way to dealing with malicious code is all tied to this. Yeah, 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 definitely. So going back briefly to the internet driver's license, one internet driver's license that's attached to a company, any company that different people might disagree with mm -hmm. is a little bit of a problem. But we have methods of doing federation that aren't stuck to a single, a single directory. Google built their OpenID platform. There's OAuth. OAuth is a, is a standard and SAML is a standard and they're related, but not the same. Right. But in a lot of ways, these are all systems that separate authentication from authorization. Yeah. yeah. We being old school people, authentication and authorization are the same layer in our heads for a lot mm -hmm, of stuff yeah. when you're on a single server. But this is a system where you get an authentication. Like, let's take the general example of SAML. You authenticate to your IDP, your identity provider, 
and it says, okay, you're definitely the person you say that you are. And it provides back a token that says that, that validates that authentication and gives you certain attributes. And those attributes are matched up against authorizations on the actual service side. Right, right, yeah. So that's how that interconnection works. You have the authenticating side that the service provider trusts, and then they authorize things based on the information provided by the identity provider mm -hmm. for service per permissions. Uh, and I think that this is going to be kind of the core of how this stuff works going forward. I mean, it's how it works now. Yeah, yeah. I think it's going to get a little bit narrower because I got to tell you, putting this podcast up has made me a little frustrated with the number of different authentication systems I have to deal with from <laughs> folks that text me six digit number phone as phone as a token to things mm -hmm. to folks that I can use my Google authenticator to things that use straight passwords. Right. And it's just like, can I just use one account and one to, and one token generation? Can I put everything and authorize it based on a UV key? Is that mm -hmm. possible? No. Yeah. Actually, nobody, nobody but Amazon so far has 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 uh, supported a UV key. It's a shame because I really like UV keys, and yeah. I feel you know, especially since they have the the UV key FIPS uh, compliant ones too. Now, mm -hmm. like, I feel like they should be getting a lot more traction in both the government sector and the private sector because they're. Yeah. They're just handy, um, and it's way easier using them than a full-blown uh, PIV or CAC card. Um, mm -hmm. And then you have to have the reader too, and like you know all this yeah, other these, stuff. They're very good physical tokens. Although I got to say, for the the smart card based stuff, I don't. I've never seen a YubiKey implementation that includes authentication by fingerprint. That information is embedded into a PIV and CAC card. There, there is a YubiKey that has a fingerprint uh, sensor on it. Interesting. I haven't seen yeah. that one. I'll have to look at that. I don't know if that was one of the earlier models and they did away with it, but I do remember there being like a little gold plate you could put your fingerprint. Now, I don't know if it was your actual no. fingerprint or if it's just pressure censored. No. So um, I have one, the Nano, which mm -hmm. has just a metal contact and that is just a touch sensor. Okay. Maybe it was just touch sensor. Though. Yeah. So actually both of the keys I have um, for various purposes have a touch sensor that just says, oh, I will give you a code now rather than just always streaming it out. That might be what I, I'm thinking of then. Yeah. It's like tangent. I just, I just Google it real quick. They have biometric uh, security keys. Awesome. They well, have a bio series. I'll have to look into that because that mm -hmm. was one of my, the things that I didn't love about the YubiKey is that there was right. no security on the token other than owning it, other than physically having the token. Right, right. Yeah. Which is good for a lot of applications, but not necessarily everything that, that's required in every application. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we talked a lot about passwords and password for use and how scalability on the current internet kind of changes the nature of that pro of of that problem from what it was. I'm going to talk a little uh, something about something very different from that. A, a piece of malware that that I did a report on was China Chopper, and this is kind of the sing, uh, the family of these things. Okay. So you know what a web shell is, right? Uh... So this is just a part of a website that you can execute commands from malicious uh, as a rootkit, or I have even seen admins do it on purpose. Um, okay. I, I don't think I've ever, um, ever learned that term. So this is malware that targets the admin. They get hmm. an admin to install something for a production web server. They might add it as part of a module or a library that somebody might use. Okay. So an admin might install your pre-hacked for the, for your convenience um, library or website piece, somebody might distribute a Drupal distribution that has a web shell built into it or something like that. Hmm. Something simple like that. Well, now you have a web server that has, in addition to everything you intended to have on it, a web shell that you didn't know about. Right, right. So now your web server's hacked, but because the bad guy is assuming that you're at least doing good network sanit sanitization, that web server can't just reach out on the internet and just talk to a reverse shell. Right. But it's hosting that web shell. So the directionality is inbound traffic. My brain said, it's like a reverse reverse shell. Then I had to get <laughs> up and find a mirror so that I could glare at myself. <laughs> it's one of those 360 shells. <laughs> exactly. So how do they find the victim? Hmm. Well, 
they scan the internet like our episode scanning the whole internet <laughs> <laughs> we should just name this episode callback the other episodes. <laughs> yes so if you've examined web traffic uh, that hasn't gone through any kind of filtering from the internet to a public website you may see things like um curly at die paren md5 paren january and speak and close paren close paren close curly which is basically something that evaluates in php as the md5 hash of january okay so if you send that to the web shell mm-hmm. it'll run that and it, everything's working, it'll run that as PHP and just send you back that MD5. So if you make a request hmm. with that, you'll know you got it if you get the MD5 you're expecting. Interesting. Okay. I think, well, when I was doing the research, I saw Think PHP had a vulnerability that did like raw evaluation of PHP, and you saw a very similar kind of thing. Okay. It, we, uh, when you said, you know, you thought PHP had a vulnerability, I was like, PHP's never had vulnerabilities. <laughs> Oh, we talked about that last uh, last HTTP episode, <laughs> yep. and we only like glossed over the surface. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a it's a pretty deep ocean. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the the series is an overview set of things. Mm-hmm. If we were trying to go with every vulnerability, well, we'd have enough content to go on basically forever. But I don't think it'd be as interesting a podcast. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so China Chopper has been a piece of malware that has operated like this. It's gone through several generations and um, it works pretty much like this. They have essentially a raw evaluation in some kind of call that um, one of the things they change in the various generations is exactly what the request looks like. Mm-hmm. Because okay. as soon as you know what the request looks like, you can write a snort rule or a WAF rule and block it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But these things are evaluating raw code they're executing with the same privileges as the web server, or if you are use like the, the priv exec or a command exec type functionality, whatever that execution privilege is, but that's still running code basically on the server. So this is like exploiting the web server, except you're exploiting the web, you're exploiting the website to, to create a shell that lets you do that. Right. And, uh, when I was looking at China Chopper for one of my engagements, um, I found a bunch of this traffic and I was basically looking into everything that all the rejected traffic. And this was uh-huh. the, the the majority of the rejected traffic to the public web servers was all attempts to find China Chopper hits. Oh, really? The thing that I found kind of interesting about that particular incident, which I ran like all the way to ground, was uh-huh. that... I took a significant sample of the of of the IPs, the networks that they were in, the autonomous system numbers. The autonomous system numbers that most of this traffic were coming from were residential broadband or residential um, or residential dial-up stuff hmm. all over the world. Right. One particular point, it was all coming from one country, but over the course, it was kind of all over the world. So that screams somebody's using a botnet to go and screen for this stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So like. Instead of kind of the way that we've begun to see all of the ransomware stuff where the targeting is huge and then the exploitation is narrow. This is kind of the other way around. Targeting is narrow because it's the library, you're targeting the admins, and then exploitation is very broad, scanning Mm -hmm. the whole internet. Right, right, yeah, yeah. So I thought that that was an important thing to bring up when you're talking about kind of the modern era of HTTP badness. Like thinking about things, everything can be at scale. Right, right. In a way that we just weren't used to thinking of things in about 10 or so years ago. In the, in the before four? In the before four. Okay. This is going to be a little bit of a short one, but uh, in my outline, I call this depends on dependencies. <laughs> so there's, a, I believe it's a JavaScript, uh, yes, yeah, JavaScript module management system called NPM. Okay. And they work kind of like a combo GitHub CPAN. Um, CPAN is a Perl thing, or what does Python call it? Um, py.pl, which is which is the essentially the the official module repository, the official library repository for Python. Okay. So people use stuff that's up there, and sometimes they just straight do a raw include of things in an NPM. Mm-hmm. 
Well, there's this developer um, by the name of uh, Kakalo. Uh, it's K-O and um, it's one of the C type squiggly characters. And I don't know the name of it. Uh, U-L-U. And that's the reason why I'm not sure about pronunciation is I right. don't know how to pronounce that letter. Um, he was a developer who had posted a lot of things to NPM, had created a lot of open source software and was working on an open source software, like a website Kickstarter called Kick, K-I-K. Okay. Well, a company called K-I-K mm-hmm. wanted to release their stuff and call it K-I-K. But this guy had already used, had already basically claimed the namespace right. for it. And this isn't like DNS where there's kind of a whole adjudication process. It's all owned by a company and that company can do what it wants more or less. And it's only beholden holding to the people that are hosting stuff in there. It's not like there's any legal implications. Like there are right. domain names. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. So, I mean, domain names are property. Namespace in NPM is not. So in the end, the NPM folks said, well, this is a company. And if people are looking for things in this company, they're going to look for KIK. They're going to, you know, NPM install and KIK. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to give it to them. Well, this guy was annoyed by this. So he took down a bunch yeah. of the stuff that he had open source projects. One of the open source projects that he had put up there was a very small 17 line uh, JavaScript function called LeftPad, um, which was a JavaScript function that right justifies text. But a lot okay. of sites used it. Like a lot oh. of sites used it. Then they included directly from NPM. They didn't run a, a, a lot of sites didn't run like a, a local copy that they were that they were updating. It just right, right. gone. So when he took it down, he took down hundreds and hundreds of sites. <laughs> now, relatively quickly, another developer essentially named the thing the same thing and uploaded the same code. Mm-hmm. But this opens the door for all kinds of stuff. So somebody gets use of, you know, this code of right. a piece of code that, that is important for structuring websites. Lots of folks use it. Somebody did a good job of it. Mm-hmm. What happens if they add something malicious to it or even yeah. better? What if their GitHub or their NPM account or whatever gets compromised? Right. Yeah. And then that gets added there. This is goes into a, couple of, co- of complicated problems. One is using resources that are not under your control anymore. Another is the trustability of open source, which has been a long debate. And I don't think that the internet can run without open source software. Oh, definitely not. The thing that I've learned a lot about in, in as we've done this, this show, like more and more than I, it's crystallized my thinking from all the research I've done is that there's three legs to the stool. There's the open source side, there's the corporate side, and there's the government side. And Mm -hmm. if we didn't have one of those legs, the internet would not have gotten to where it, where it's at. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you'll see occasionally articles about open source, about relying on open source. Uh, The latest one I saw was about log4j, which happened a little while ago. Mm -hmm of like, how can we trust this stuff? And it's like, well, some stuff gets widely used enough where it's probably worth industry or even the government, non-governmental organization doing a code audit and contributing back that stuff as a general service. Because any fixes to Apache, any fixes to OpenSSL are gonna benefit everybody who runs infrastructure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think the problem is that people think that when they get the code for free, it's totally free. Yeah, yeah. And it's not, and it shouldn't be. It's not just, you know, the the old adage that I've said, I'm sure on this podcast a few times, which is open source is only free if your time has no value. But <laughs> yeah. as a collective, the community should feel some reason to contribute towards code auditing as a, as a, um, as a large scale thing. It literally benefits everybody. I, in fact, working in the U.S. side of things, I've made the argument several times to people who don't care and can't do anything about it um, that we use the software in the government. But just like I was saying earlier, any fixes to those things fix things in the entire infrastructure. And the U.S., pretty much like nowhere else on Earth, has privatized a lot of its critical infrastructure. Yeah, and because of that 
this is one of the very few veins you have for the government to enforce fixes that can be disseminated throughout the entire the entire infrastructure because you're just providing fixes to software that people are already using. You can't force them to update, but you can make the updates happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But again, part of this is highlighting the fact that unlike the old traditional websites where everything was basically coming from one server, this is an example of what happens when we're pulling libraries and components of the site from everywhere. Mm-hmm. Another thing that came up at points was when the ad networks were getting Trojaned in like their banner ads. This happened a few years ago. I didn't actually do the research for this. It just, I was just reminded of this. Yeah. Again, I, I think we talked about in one episode, the DeviantArt, yeah. uh, their, their uh, main splash page um, yeah. was hacked for like a few months. Yeah. Forbes.com, I believe, had a um, had served up some malicious banner ads from their ad provider. Mm-hmm. I think we talked about that in the Flash episode, actually. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, I was talking about Blitzblader, um, which was a which was a Flash security tool that was made specifically yes. to combat that. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I, I yeah. just vaguely remember um, what was it? There, there were like a kids' cartoon or something where the ad role for the kids' cartoon it might have not been malicious, but I think the ad role uh, played like porn ads or something like that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's happened. I don't. I, mm. I don't. Rem, I don't remember any details on that. Uh, but I mean, that's also a problem with uh, with some of the this the social feedback that we've had in the internet world. We know that there have been more than a few websites that have maintained their funding essentially because who they're advertising for, the original source of the ads, gives that money to an ad network, and that ad network basically will serve ads up to anywhere that's getting clicks. So there's this divorce between who's providing the ad and who's serving it up. And maybe ideologically, those two things don't meet. Yeah. So the last thing I want to talk about, I know this is getting to be a little bit of a long uh, episode, but this is a really cool thing. I was leaving kind of the best to last is uh, what I like to call content delivery gone bad. (laughs) <laughs> when i was at this talk i was this is the first time i believe i ever said write once hack everywhere <laughs> so this work was done by james kettle of port swigger who are, that's the company that makes the web vulnerability set of tools called burp suite okay so a lot of websites use content delivery networks Akamai, Cloudflare. There are actually a lot of them. Those are kind of the biggest players. Right. And what they do is they serve up the static parts of your web page, but you're not saying, hey, here's the list of parts of the thing. They dynamically figure out what those are based on the requests and stuff. Mm-hmm. So in order to get performance out of it, they need to serve up the thing you're asking for faster than the original web server could do it. So they'll right. do it closer with more bandwidth, but they need to know how to pick out what they're serving you. The way that they do that is that they take parts of the HTTP header and they use that as the key for what they're caching, which is usually the URI and the host ID. But like we talked about in the very, I think of the first episode is that there's a lot of different header pieces that you can put in. And in fact, there's nothing in the protocol that that prevents you from adding more of them. They're just, the web server doesn't care about it unless it's one of the valid ones. Right, yeah. They're, they're like there's no restriction within the, the way that the header is formatted. So what Mr. Kettle figured out at one point was that if you were to have, if just the URI and the, uh, and the host name are, are, are cached and you ask for an English page and I ask for the Spanish page. Mm-hmm. The language is one of those cache headers. It's going to serve me up the English page because I asked for the same thing as you as far as the cache engine is concerned. Okay. Because it's only paying attention to the host header. Right. And the top line get request where the URI is. Right, right. Well, I mean, that was that's the simplest case. And they fixed that pretty quickly because that was a functional problem. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that it will essentially concatenate together stuff that's in other headers that it's ignoring. Hmm, Okay. And if you can get that request in the cache 
what happens is it serves those up without those header elements. So you can essentially write to the top of the web page. Okay. So this is the same kind of thing as a cross-site scripting, except there's no cross. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's embedding the malicious code directly into the web page that's being served up, served up by the content delivery network. The, right, yeah. The cache proxy. So when this was first worked out in 2018, um, they fixed the original things. And there was another presentation, I think, in 2020, 2021, where there were some new discoveries. I have every reason to believe this vein is not fully tapped, that hmm. there will be more of these things and these things. It will progressively be harder to poison the cache. Right. The cache engines will ignore or sanitize things that, that are that are in the header. But I believe that if you can get it in the cache, you can get it onto every visitor of that site. Damn. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. I saw this and I was like, this is a problem that only exists in this version of the internet where we're got a lot of uh, software as a service, cloud-based multi-component sites. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, and that was why I thought it was really important to bring up. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> huh, that's interesting, yeah. So I think that's all that we're going to cover on HTTP as a foundation thing. Um, I think this was the last of the of the fundamentals episodes. <laughs> Thank God, because they are harder than all right. of the other episodes I've done. Um, although I think my next my next big one is is going to be even tougher, um, which is going to be about the crypto wars. Uh, I have I think four episodes planned right now. Mm, yeah. Oh, I wanted to, to ask you. Uh, I was going to ask you offline, but I'll, I'll just ask you on the podcast. Have you seen the folding ideas video on uh, NFTs? No. You did an episode on. Bitcoin, I believe. I did went on Bitcoin specifically because it's yeah. a, the this is a whole big world, and I'm not sure I wouldn't want to strangle somebody if I did too much research into it. Yeah, uh, the whole <laughs> concept of NFTs and Bitcoin and all that uh, makes me yeah just want to murder myself or other people. But yeah, it's a two hour long video. Uh, anyone listening, uh, you can check it out at Folding Ideas, his YouTube channel. But I, I've only gotten like 20 minutes into it or so, but I've been he hearing like really good reviews. Another good book about the about uh, about this stuff is a is a book you can get on Kindle called uh, Attack of the 50 Foot Blockchain. Mm. At some point, we may do some talking about uh, digital cash as a subject, because the problem that Bitcoin was trying to solve is an interesting one and they've run into some scaling problems some of which have been addressed not all of which have been addressed and i think are, are, it's interesting to talk about that because the U, one of the u.s federal banks i believe the one in boston recently mm. did some work on that and uh, i know that the um the swedish central bank uh also did some work that was a, in in the talk that you and i were at at defcon in yeah. 2021 so I think that it's worth talking about all of the, the problems themselves and, the, and all of the different ways that we've tried to solve them because blockchain is an immutable transaction record and that's cool, but it's not the only way to solve that problem. Yeah, 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 exactly. Until next time. Until next time. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.